You're <laughs> listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM on CIUT, but as also could be possibly on one of our wonderful and very appreciated radio partners uh, internationally, but especially because we're favorite. You know, we play favoritism here on the show, Stephanie. We, we slightly marginally 1% prefer Canadian partners. Just, you know, no offense. Just that's the way it is. Um, you're uh, also could it's be our agreement to NAFTA, actually. It's true. We it's actually to. our it's, NAFTA it, obligation. Yeah, we have to slightly yeah. appreciate 51% more. of all appreciation has to go to Canadian content. <laughs> it's Canadian content. Provision uh, NAFTA. That's what it is. There, there you go. go. <laughs> Canadian appreciation content. Uh, so also, you could be listening on the podcast, which is really the best way to listen. Uh for no other reason than we get more data that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's then we know you're listening. That's the real key. It's easier uh, for us to play uh, uh, Cambridge Analytica cosplay if you're listening to us via the <laughs> podcast such that we can track your information. <laughs> I, uh, that's enough goofing. <laughs> you know, if even David's laughing, then we're good. All right, so we have uh, we have David in the studio. Stefan, as of course you heard, chime in. I'm your host, Aaron Kaster. We have uh, a guest and a special guest, an interview guest and a special guest. Our special guest is uh, uh, Jason, and this is your first time I'm saying your name potentially out loud ever. Uh, Hansma? Uh, yeah, it's basically it. Yeah, basically, <laughs> that's a very polite no. I Thank honestly you. think that the green, if we go back to our playing the game uh, of other unofficial ha- taglines for the show, basically it is probably <laughs> it's probably going. It's a great majority. It's basically it. Would you would you kindly correct me, please? Yeah, it's Hansma. Hansma. I basically okay. have to spell it to everyone. Before <laughs> I put it in any computer. So we've had a we've been we've been uh, premiering a bunch of new volunteers. Jason is uh, one of these uh, volunteers as well. Going to be contributing, time permitting, uh, here and again, and is joining us today. But before we get to Jason, who's actually going to be starting us off uh, with a little bit of information uh, inspired by Doug Ford, we're going to talk a little bit about the green belt here just momentarily. Uh, we also have some more uh, beast, uh, uh, oil news, of course, impossible to avoid it. Uh, but then. And at the end of the program, my long-promised uh, at least part two of my policy uh, proposal uh, segment that I've been planning on for a few weeks. And in the middle, uh, Stefan is going to assist us in bringing Robin Tress from the Council of Canadians about the BP Scotian Basin Exploration Project. Uh, but as I just mentioned, uh, and of course, Dave will be uh, providing his usual brilliance as well. So we have a nice full studio here today. Yeah. Uh, but uh, as I just mentioned, uh, Jason will be starting us off uh, with some Doug Ford-inspired content. Is that uh, slightly accurate? Partially accurate? Yeah, Doug Ford and the Green Belt and uh, all that situation kind of thing. All right. Uh, so uh, what, is all, what's, what is this Green Belt for the listeners who may not be in Ontario? Uh, the Green Belt is uh, basically a group of land uh, protected by the government surrounding the GTA and Hamilton and such. Uh, it's also called the Gordon Golden Horseshoe, and it was basically created under uh, Dalton McGinney and the Liberals in 2005. Cool. Right, uh, and and just uh, just go in. So, why don't we just do the just get a recap of the of the whole news? Let's go for it. Cool. Uh, so basically, that yeah, on ter- uh, April third, the Liberal Party released a video from February twelfth uh, of Doug Ford basically t- promising developers that he was going to open up a huge chunk of the green belt to turn it into housing, uh, calling it basically just farmers' fields. Uh, this was his answer to the housing crisis, and when that was released, he was at a rally in Whitby, and he was called out on it. And basically, he confirmed, yep, he was, in fact, looking to open the green belt for uh, development. I support, basically, his words, I support the green belt in a big way. Anything we may look into reduce housing costs. Basically, everyone knows housing costs are through the roof, and there's no more property available to build housing in Toronto or the GTA. But it will be replaced. Anything that we look look at on the green belt will be replaced, so there will be an equal amount of green belt. 
He basically gave no specifics about how that would happen. <laughs> right. Or even a properly uh, perforated sentence. <laughs> yeah, even I was having trouble saying it. I'm like, you were repeating yourself multiple times, and now I sound also foolish. <laughs> um, so, yeah, basically, uh, he stood by that, and the next day, he got so much backlash. Uh, so he recanted his statements. Basically, uh, people from political parties to uh, actually city planners and developers to... Uh, conservationist, environmental stuff like that, uh, and then he released a statement. I looked at it at making sure we were we have more affordable housing. There have been a lot of voices saying that they don't want to touch the green belt. I govern through the people. I don't govern through the government. The people have spoken. We don't. We won't touch the green belt. What was interesting about that portion, of course, was the people had spoken well before then, and he just didn't yeah read it, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. continue. <laughs> no, for sure. Like you think, um, I know a lot of people are commenting about. Well, he listens to the people. Like, well, why wasn't he listening to them before he promised the voters? <laughs> I guess always select few of the people he listens to. <laughs> He's listening to the people who he hears, and he gets himself in a lot of meetings with developers, and not so a lot of meetings with everybody else. And then, yeah. and then takes the media to inform him that oh, actually, here's the meeting you missed, which was that ninety percent of Ontarians support this. Yeah, this absolutely. Field. Yeah, because basically, like, Greenbelt is, uh, it's, like, over 2 million acres, 800,000 hectares, if you like that terminology. Uh, bigger than PEI, and it's the largest in the world and the most protected. So it's something that, like, people, it makes sense that they're down for it. Um, and it was basically created because, like, from 91 to 2001, the GTA grew from, like, 6.5 million to 7.7 million, and we lost a 7% decrease in farmland. And so it made sense to, like, all right, like, we need to protect this, and... Um, just like when we have 100,000 people coming into the, the, the GTA every year and expected to have like 11.5 by 2031 and 13 million by 2041. So basically, it, I think, uh, I'm sorry, I'm saying basically a bunch. Uh, a lot of people think, or I guess critics think of the green belts that it should be open up because it, it, it drives up housing, housing prices. Uh, the Liberal government basically dismissed that back in like last year in 2017. Um, they use the, there's a group called the Neptus Foundation, uh, their charitable foundation that conducts urban planning research. And they calculated about 110,000 acres of, of, uh, green, green fields, green land to be developed. Uh, none of that is actually in Toronto or Mississauga, but mostly in Vaughan, Brampton and the other surrounding areas. And that would actually hold us to 2031, if not more. So, it, it, so basically there is like definitely land with, that's available that's not to, you don't need to develop the green uh, the green belt but and some people actually claim that you should uh, protect the green belt even more and actually expand it um, such as the former mayor of um, Toronto David Crombie he states that the region it's only about like 3.5 percent of the Ontario but it's 42.5 or 42 percent of the the province's best farmland so we're literally like building on that like that that doesn't really make sense and uh, it would appear like, yeah, the public's definitely down for this. Like over 90% agree with this. And even things like the, um, like last year, there was a poll with the Environmental Defense and a group of the Greenbelt Foundation and asking basically South Ontarians what they thought of the Ontario Growth Plan, which is basically curb urban small, uh, affordable housing and protect farmland. And vast majority supported that. And they agreed that we just need to build in areas that already exist. And people, we should uh, actually invest in downtown as long as there's green spaces and like more closed housing, so community hubs and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but so, like, if there, if that's the case, and why, and housing actually is super is, is very available to everyone, and all this land has been approved, 
why is it not getting built? Well, there's an Oakville, Oakville mayor, Rob Burton, says there's a cartel economy. Basically, developers control everything. And in his, in his um, region of Halton, there's 6,000 that have been approved but not have yet been built. And there's over 100,000 in Toronto that have not been built. So basically, they are, yeah, they're basically holding a hostage in a way where they, and like, so yeah, like it can be built, but it's there, they have, they see gain in not building. And so for, uh, for clarity, they've sought yeah. permits, they sought and held their, they've, they have sought and successfully are holding permits. So it's not, it's not about like, well, there's land you could technically build. They've, they've actually got permits for it. Like they've submitted plans theoretically that they are going to build it and simply have chosen not to. Yeah. Yeah. Like Just to be all, really clear about that part. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Like I'm trying to summarize what I wrote here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and basically he said, as long as developers don't feel pressure to develop in existing boundaries, the green belt is threatened. So uh, it would, so actually expanding it and I guess cracking down, I guess this is his final point on saying the municipal, federal, or maybe not federal, but provincial governments should step in. And, and I guess that's probably why they increased it. Um, you can jump in here. Yeah, totally. Uh, with the, the, ta the higher taxes on uh, vacant lots, I think that was the Yeah, thing. yeah. There's, so there's, yeah, there's an, in, this is an interesting bit uh, of Doug Ford trying to use the fact that uh, there's currently a housing crisis going on in the city of Toronto as a way to argue for more developers when when in real like when in reality the solution to this problem really looks like densification not further sprawl you know and and then also the this the the level and and then of course the vacant the, the vacant units that are currently being held really as people are are currently finding it you know more prop or enough prop profitable enough to really just buy and hold property rather than actually sort of make sure there are people in it uh, and so the idea that increasing the amount of, of, of houses when we're only when we're not completely full already because of the sort of current market we're in is is kind of is, is already concerning uh, and it, it like it's it, if you were going to make an argument for trying to undermine the green belt uh, using housing insecurity as the argument is a pretty is a pretty like I don't want to say intelligent, but it's a pretty like it's a pretty cunning move, I guess I'll say. You know, uh, it's very hard to come out and say no, people don't deserve affordable housing. That's not exactly a strong case made on any side. Um, but I think it's important that, but it's, it is good that the green belt is so is so popular that that and and, and so, has been so clearly effective in its policy that we're able to shift the conversation from from just that actually effectively to what does real uh, responses to housing insecurity look like. Uh, any any last thoughts before we sort of switch topics here? Uh, no, it's just yeah, I would agree. It, it makes sense that if he didn't get caught, and like now it's coming out that people are finding out that yeah, housing is available. It's just there's a stranglehold, and yeah. people aren't. Yeah, developers should be developing when they're not. Um, and it's yeah, it also makes the defending the green belt so much easier because they're like, no, there is a culprit. It's actually not creating more urban sprawl. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. A, another option. Cool. Absolutely, yeah. All right, well, thank you very much. Yeah, uh, to, to, to trying to fit into two more stories here, actually, before the break. So, Dave, do you want to quickly get us uh, through uh, the, the the fun with Jason Kenny, and then we'll and then we'll introduce our time for the Jason Kenny because you guys might go off. <laughs> let's let's tease it, and if we want to go off, we can we can we can hold that to next week. Let's I'll, at least, let's I'll least sneak it into my section if I if I have to. <laughs> so yes, at an Alberta United Conservative Party convention on Saturday, May fifth, provincial leader Jason Kenny gave a speech promising to set up a war room to wage an information and legal battle against the environmental left. During the speech, he said, quote, 
The special interests have targeted Alberta oil and not Saudi, Venezuelan, or Russian oil because they saw us as the Boy Scouts, the soft target, adding, we will fight back for economic survival. We will set up a fully staffed rapid response war room to govern to sorry, war room in government to quickly and effectively rebut every lie told by the green left about our world-class energy industry. We will pass a law banning foreign money and from being spent by special interests during Alberta elections. He promised to use the courts to get Ottawa to remove the charitable status of, quote, bogus charities like the David Suzuki Foundation, whose namesake, whose namesake has called for a complete shutdown of the oil sands. Kenny also stated that he will boycott companies like HSBC if they divest from Albertan oil. Kenny also wants energy lobbyists and industry groups to, quote, step up their game in telling their story and follow the example of Resolute Forest Products, which is suing Greenpeace for defamation. In 2017, a U.S. court dismissed a racketeering lawsuit filed by Resolute Forest Products against Greenpeace and other groups, with the, ju with the judge writing that the, that the defendant's speech, quote, constituted the expression of opinion or, or different viewpoints that are, vital, that are a vital part of our democracy. In his speech, Kenny added that Alberta's current NDP government is ideological, resents success, and distrusts enterprise. Ugh. <laughs> uh, I think that might be all we have time for, is a, like, just, a, just a deep sigh, uh, given the... Like beautiful little speech. There, you know, there just takes a level of like you know to act to act as if the oil industry in Canada is somehow this this put upon nature is I guess it's actually quite similar to some of the other other ways that that sort of people in power twist the fact that they get that that they have higher responsibilities because they're in power as they themselves being oppressed right mm -hmm. like it's a similar sort of ethos which is like I have a ton of power therefore I have a ton of responsibility you critiquing me for my failure on my responsibility is as the same as everyone else getting oppressed mm -hmm. and and it is it is that is that is the ethos here, right? The ethos here is like, everyone's like, hey, Alberta and oil industry, you're one of the largest industries in the world. Maybe you should take climate change seriously. And they're like, oh, no, you're being mean to me. This is oppression. I will set up a war room to defend you. Mm -hmm. Like, it's similar as the as the as what's being used in the language about Kinder Morgan about how this is somehow a conversation about um, about David versus Goliath. It is. But you're Goliath. <laughs> you're you're the billion dollar organization that's trying to force something through people's lands. Like and yet and yet somehow they twist in their minds that the oil industry is the one that's really being put upon here. Mm -hmm. And it's just like mm -hmm. it's hard to get beyond that because it's just so frustrating from a sort of a set point. Uh, it's yeah. <laughs> uh, Jason Kenney has a, a, a long history of uh, uh, allergy to facts, um, and <laughs> and uh, I I don't I don't even know like that that many people outside of um, his the 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 cult the 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 cult segment of the conservative voting base that it like that buys into personally Jason Kenney not necessarily conservative voters but the type of people that buy into Jason Kenney I. 
they're not interested in facts that don't agree with those things. And so, but at the same point, I also don't like, I feel like he's so obviously fanatical and so obviously divorced from reality that I actually wonder if some conservative voters would not be turned off by not, not because he's despicable in the Donald Trump Trump sense, but he's just so, so slimily, obviously a politician. Like he's just so ridiculously politiciany that I, even if people mm. pull, like people might pull the lever for, for them, uh, for, or for him rather, uh, like with a grimace, uh, but it's going to be at a minimum with a grimace. He's just so obviously slimy and, and mm-hmm. full of it. Um, His war room. I uh, find it, room. I, I just, I, I have more, fa- I have famously low faith in humanity and I, even I have enough faith to think that n- n- at least some people can see through that that would normally vote for them, even if they still vote for him. <laughs> It, uh, yeah, he's going to, well, he's the next Premier of Alberta. Uh, anyways, uh, so we need to, because we actually have a pretty long intro actually to our um, to our, to our our guest, uh, we're going to let Dave sort of do the intro right now, and then we're going to take a music break so you can get ready for it, and then we'll jump right in when we get off the break. Uh, so Dave, can you let us know the, the story sort of we're covering? So yes, after the break, we will be interviewing Robin Tress of the Council of Canadians, a nonprofit environmental activist group found online at canadians.org. We will be speaking uh, about British Petroleum's offshore drilling plans for the Canadian East Coast. The exploration licenses are held 50-50 between BP and the Canadian government. BP has been testing the area since 2014 and have located potential hydrocarbon reserves and having located potential hydrocarbon reserves, have now been approved for drilling preparations off the coast of Halifax. The federal, the federal environmental assessment found the drilling was, quote, not likely to cause a significant adverse environmental effects, that indigenous interests have been, quote, accommodated for, and that the process has been consistent with the, quote, honor of the crown. Nick Maloney for the CBC wrote, The report states the activity that comes with drilling and operating a drilling rig could affect fish habitats and water and sediment quality, leading fish to avoid the FSC areas and adversely affecting First Nations catch. The report says that these effects are predicted to be temporary and reversible. An environmental protection plan was approved last month by the Canada-Nova Scotia Offshore Petroleum Board, allowing BP to begin preparations short of the drilling itself. Just last year, the company, the, the oil company Shell abandoned and sealed two wells off the same coast after finding they didn't have, quote, commercial quantities of oil. In March of this year, the Offshore Alliance, which includes the Council of Canadians, declined to participate in a 90-minute consultation held by the Canada-Nova Scotia Offshore Petroleum Board, with 45 minutes set aside for what they called a sharing circle. An unwelcoming party was held by Mi'kmaq water protectors and activists on April 13th. Mi'kmaq activist Michelle Paul said, We want them to know they aren't welcome here. They never will be. As a rights holder, I was offended when I heard BP is setting up in our waters. I wanted to tell them face to face. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, We'll be getting to that uh, right after the break. Uh, So for right now, let's, uh, let's head on over to music. Right, we are back. You're listening to the Green Majority here now into the middle section. I'm going to uh, pass now to Stefan to introduce and continue uh, with our guest and, and do the interview. Stefan, take it away. Thanks so much. Uh, hi, uh, Robin. It sounds like you're there. How are you doing? Yep, I'm here. Amazing. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. No worries. Uh, so, David gave a, a bit of an intro, but let's. Uh, but obviously, you're you're embedded in this in this whole thing. So, can you just sort of give us an outline uh, of what the proposal is and, and what the timeline is we're looking at? Yeah. So, BP has been approved to drill up to seven exploratory wells, um, and they have started drilling the first one. Um, they say it will take somewhere between 120 and 150 ish days, so four or five months to drill that well, and then they'll move on um, to the following well. And I should say right off the bat that exploratory drilling is just as dangerous as um, drilling for the purposes of extraction. And in fact, most drilling accidents happen in the exploratory phase because things are kind of moving around and there's a lot more a lot more activity and, and movement and setting up and tearing down in the exploratory phase. Right, that makes sense. Uh, and, and and so they're so they're so they're about to start drilling the first one. No, they have. Uh, they already drilling. started drilling, and and there's and there's, yeah. and, and, there's, and there's they could uh, drill up to seven. That's the that's the yeah. Cool. And 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 how far? Uh, and it's it's often the Nova Scotian coast, of course. It's off the Nova Scotia coast, and there are a few lease sites. So the seven wells are at different depths into the ocean and at different places. But um, you know, they're the, the one of them is quite close to Sable Island National Park Reserve. Um, it's something in the range of thirty kilometers off the coast of Sable Island, which is a beautiful protected area that we have um, in Nova Scotia, and they sort of run down the down the coast um, from there, so they're about, you know, in the 200 range, 200 kilometers offshore from the mainland. Right, great. And and, and so, of course, there, there's a whole variety of players uh, that are that are part of this, this approval, and the, and the first one, of course, is BP, British Petroleum. Um, yeah. Who you know n- don't exactly have the greatest track record of of, 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 uh, of drilling on <laughs> deep underwater. Um, uh, those of you who are listening to the show or really follow the news at all, uh, probably aware of Deepwater uh, the Horizon, the uh, the explosion and ongoing. Uh, honestly, I will say ongoing environmental disaster that that the, yeah. that, that BP has led That's to the Gulf accurate. Coast. Um, and so, so there's certainly reasons to be concerned about about the about sort of the primary uh, key holder in here, which is British. Petroleum, but can you tell us about the other people who are involved? Yeah, so British Petroleum is the company that is conducting this project. There are also other projects proposed and in various phases um, by Shell and Statoil, um, but the one that's currently drilling is BP, so that's what we're focusing on now. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the Department of Envi- or, sorry, Climate, what's it called now? Environment and Climate Change Canada, the federal department, um, gave the first approval. There's a couple of approvals uh, from different government bodies here, and the federal government gave the first one. And remarkably, their answer to BP's uh, request for an environmental assessment, they looked at the proposal that came from BP and said, yep, this is unlikely to cause harm, and so go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I found that incredible. That approval came in February, and then just this week we heard um, from a longtime industry expert named Dr. Robert Bia, and he took a look at their risk assessment and just said, no, 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 this is not, this is not uh, appropriate, and in any other country, this project would not have been approved. Can, can you get into the specifics uh, at all, if possible, of, of why he was considered this to be uh, so, so much more different <laughs> from other ones? Um, well, so one thing that he did say was that from the information that, so, so to be clear, this person, Dr. Bia, 
he has, you know, over 40 years experience in the industry. He's a risk analyst. This is his job. He does risk assessments for projects in the petroleum industry, much like this. He's done this in Canada and the U.S. and, and in Australia. And he took a look at the publicly available information and said, I could not do a risk assessment if I wanted to because there just isn't enough information available. Okay. So <laughs> that's one. <laughs> yeah. Um, and secondly, the... Uh, the regulations in Canada that relate to offshore drilling, which are mostly um, uh, regulated, you know, the offshore industry is mostly regulated by the Offshore Petroleum Board. So in, in Nova Scotia, we have the Nova, Canada Nova Scotia Offshore Petroleum Board. And uh, these boards and the federal government don't hold companies to a very high standard. So other places, like the U.S., for example, since um, BP's big oil spill in 2010 in the Gulf of Mexico, lots of rules have changed, and some of the rules in the U.S. in particular are things like every company needs to have a capping stack available quite readily, and a capping stack is something that you use if there is a blowout and an uncontrolled release of oil. Mm. So in the U.S., BP would be required to have one available within a short period of time. In Canada, they are permitted to have one available within 12 to 14 days. So the, mm. the capping stack that BP would use if it was if there was an accident in Nova Scotian waters, the capping stack they would use is in Norway. Oh wow! And yeah. our government said, "Yep, that's fine." Yeah. Um, so that's remarkable. They also are not required to. Um, BP in Canada is not required to drill uh, relief wells or have a relief well drilling unit on site. And in other places, that is mandatory because. Once a blowout happens, the only way to deal with it and, and regain control is to drill a second well into the same um, oil-bearing uh, sediments. So, yeah, in Canada, they're just not required to do that. But in other places in the world, they absolutely are. So I think it's fair to say that Canada is not holding companies that want to do offshore drilling to a high standard. Yeah. And and, and I'm curious about, about if we can dive in a little bit, why that might be. So obviously the Canadian Nova Scotia Offshore Petroleum Board uh, is not uh, is not well known, I imagine, across Canada. You know, mm-hmm. like like we last week we had a whole thing about the National Energy Board, which yeah. regulates pipelines. And they obviously at least at, more recently have come into a conversation a bit more on the, I would assume that at least maybe a, a higher percentage would understand sort of the regulatory process that goes through to get pipelines through. Uh, mm-hmm. But offshore drilling, especially for those of us in in the center of Canada, uh, spe- geographically speaking, not uh, not ego speaking, um, <laughs> uh, uh, would not be as uh, aware of the mm-hmm. uh, of these types of things. So, can you give us a little bit of understanding of what is the Can- Canadian Nova Scotia Offshore Petroleum Board, and, and and how do they? What's their history? How do they operate? Yeah. So the Offshore Petroleum Board. There's one in Nova Scotia and one in Newfoundland. And they regulate offshore drilling. Um, so when BP, so BP's uh, environmental assessment was approved by the federal government, and then regulation was handed to the Offshore Petroleum Board um, for the final permissions to enter Nova Scotian waters and to start drilling, things like that. Um, and the boards are kind of strange entities because they're they are co. Uh, owned, I suppose you could say, um, by both the federal and provincial governments. And the boards were developed. The reason that they exist is because in the 80s, there was a very bad offshore disaster that some people may remember called the Ocean Ranger. And uh, 89 people died 
and it was a true disaster. And from that, there was a big inquiry, and it was decided that better oversight and different different oversight was needed of offshore resources, and so that's how those boards came to be. Um, I think that they're not, yeah, they're certainly not well-known um, outside of the coastal provinces because they are very pertinent to um, the East Coast. Uh, but yeah, you had a few other sub-questions there that I think I didn't answer. Uh, no, that, that, that was that was really just trying to get a sense of, of, of how, what their deal is and sort of how they've operated and sounds... Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, they were developed after this massive disaster in the 80s, and now they're a body that... Um, they regulate offshore drilling, but a worry that a lot of people have, myself included, is that they're very captured by the industry that they regulate, um, by which I mean that they operate in favor of the industry at the expense of everyday people, the fishery, the uh, tourism industry, our coasts, etc. So the Offshore Petroleum Board has six people on the board and then a number of staff as well. And four out of the six board members come from explicit industry backgrounds. So they're already coming from the industry, um, which I think would color their perspectives on how to regulate. Um, The board also right now says that it explicitly does not have environmental decision-making power. And I would argue also doesn't have um, the ability to do that kind of uh, environmental decision-making appropriately, but there's a bill coming through by the Liberal government called Bill C-69, which would um, change a lot of environmental policy in Canada, and that ball, that bill would hand in some environmental decision-making power to this industry-laden board. Hmm. So that's a problem. <laughs> I think that we would be hard-pressed to find a time in history where the Offshore Petroleum Board favored other industries or, or even recognized the value of industries like, you know, the multi-billion dollar fishery in Nova Scotia um, beyond the value of the oil industry. Right. We'd be hard-pressed to find a time that they said, no, no, you can't drill um, to a specific project. Um, the consultations associated with the offshore petroleum boards I find very laughable. Um, we did not actually participate in those consultations Um for principled reasons that the, the the consultations that we were invited to participate in, we didn't actually find consultative, and so we didn't want to participate um, for fear of being seen to have participated so that the, the board could, uh, you know, tick the box that says, yep, we heard from these people. Right, we talked to you, are, and you can't yeah. yeah, and so now we can move on. The, the problem with those consultations is that the formats of those consultations don't really allow for real discussion to happen, and they don't have a clear way that people can actually influence decisions um, through those consultations. There's very short sessions and meetings. There's very little time to speak. There's virtually no time to hear from others who are opposed or have different perspectives on the project. Um, pretty exclusive to community members, so I find that the consultations are quite bad. And finally, there's no, indis- there's no public funding for public participation in decision-making through the Offshore Petroleum Board and I don't want to say that the National Energy Board, which is the body that makes decisions about pipelines, now I don't want to say that they're perfect <laughs> by any stretch yeah. and things are changing now. But, um, for example, when the Energy East pipeline was being discussed, there was an opportunity to get funding from the government so that public groups 
could do research and participate in a really effective or in a, in a useful way mm. in those consultations and nothing like that is available um, when it comes to offshore Right. Yeah. And and so you and you've brought up a, a pretty important point here, which is the sort of the failure to consult effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, this is even more important when we're discussing uh, uh, First Nations groups, given that in the Constitution, it is required that we are mm-hmm. that, that they are that there's a duty con- to consult. Uh, mm-hmm. And so can you speak a little bit about sort of this, this pushback uh, that we're seeing uh, from the from the Mi'kmaq Nation uh, and other groups and, and sort of what uh, how how that sort of how that came about and how that's moving forward? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think so during the consultations and the process of making decisions about offshore, the board did speak to um, groups like the KMK, that's the uh, Mi'kmaq Rights Initiative, that's a negotiating body that represents the, well, um, 11 or 12 of the Mi'kmaq, nation, or Mi'kmaq communities in Nova Scotia. And they were consulted and had some comments and such. And I should note that the, the Mi'kmaq folks that I work with most and who I support most are folks who identify as grassroots people who are working towards, um, you know, true recognition of treaty rights. Um, and those folks have a real opposition to most processes that run through anything that was born of the Indian Act. And so I should say that the the KMK and that negotiating body represents the chiefs and councils that are elected through the processes uh, designated by the Indian Act. Mm. So that's an important clarification. And of the grassroots water protectors that we work with, there, you know, there's strong opposition because there's a real risk to the oceans that have kept people and communities alive for thousands of years since time immemorial. So yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely a growing opposition at a grassroots level um, to offshore drilling in the Mi'kmaq community Mm. from my perspective. Cool. And, and you, of course, now uh, the the, uh, you've, the Council of Canadians has now gone on this sort of coastal speaking tour mm-hmm. uh, to, 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 to to learn more about you know, the communities that are having experience and giving them a voice. Uh, what's, their, what's their feedback been uh, during this tour? Yeah, so the tour was incredible. We went to three locations in Nova Scotia on the South Shore and in Halifax, um, basically just to tell people what, <laughs> what was coming and what BP's history is like and what the history of the offshore drilling um, you know, industry and regulation is like, and it, I think it was pretty shocking for people because I think that a lot of people didn't know what was coming and what BP was proposing. They didn't know that some of the wells were twice as deep as the ones that caused the massive disaster in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010. They didn't really understand the risk that it posed to the fisheries that keep so many communities alive in Nova Scotia. Um, so those public talks were incredible. Um, And we also, on that tour, met with a number of municipal representatives and fishermen and folks from the tourism industry and such. And I think across the board, there was a lot of surprise about what BP was really proposing and what kinds of risky behavior they were getting away with. Like, for example, not having a capping stack and having a disaster response plan that was pretty weak. Um, I heard (laughs) one of the best things I heard from um, a municipal counselor on one of our meetings he said i know in my heart that this is wrong but i need more information to tell people why it's wrong 
And so I think we have our work cut out for us kind of uh, to continue that education and empowerment of people, especially in, in municipal governments and such, to continue opposing this. Um, but yeah, across the board, you know, I could count the I could count the people who wanted to see BP go ahead on one hand, missing a few fingers. So <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, and and so and so obviously a, a big part of this conversation has been centered around uh, you know the the, the impacts of, that a spill might cause, but mm-hmm. I feel like in the larger context it still is important to, to to ask yourself a second question, which is really uh, what it, what if any uh, consideration of the fact that uh, like oil exploration in a time when we already yeah. understand we cannot fundamentally uh, burn the amount of oil we already have found, let alone continue this exploration status, uh-huh. seems to me uh, like a concern. Uh, and, yeah. if I was the, <laughs> and if I was the liberal government who is arguing right now, right now that we need a pipeline to keep a, to keep a agreement going uh-huh. to keep, to, to protect the, to protect the, the, the oil sands, then, then further exploration and further uh, digging in a, or, or drilling, uh, especially underwater, at a time like is is any part of this conversation uh, in, in 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 with regards with regards to the offshore drilling board or or any of the government's conversations, including the fact that we are trying to transition off oil. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think it's safe to say no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a leading me, question. To me, it's I, completely I obvious. That. You know, like every, we all know. If we take a look at the climate science, we are just rapidly approaching our climate budget or carbon budget. If we have any intention of staying below 1.5 degrees of warming globally, we need to stop exploring and developing new oil reserves. And we need to very rapidly and in a managed way transition to renewable energy sources that are not based in fossil fuels. I mean, fossil fuels are inherently not renewable. So that is, I mean, one giant underpinning reason for opposition that like we simply as a global society cannot afford to continue developing oil like this. Um, Canada has made countless, I mean, the big, it's a big agreement. Canada, you know, Justin Trudeau's government keeps saying we've agreed to the Paris agreement. We want to keep warming below some reasonable level that we've all agreed on. And like, if they want to do that, the only way is to stop developing new new fossil fuel resources. <laughs> it's just completely, it's completely out of the question to do that and to live up to our Paris Agreement. Yeah, um, uh, I think I had, I just had to have, I, I just had, like every once in a while, like, no, I, just need that. I just need to be up. like, I just need to be like, what are we doing? Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, well, that's the thing. So there's like the long term, even I don't like, I don't even want to entertain the notion that nothing could go wrong because. The track record is so strong that, like, yeah. even if nothing catastrophic, even if nothing catastrophic happens, even if there is no massive release of oil, there are so many impacts of offshore drilling on the oceans. And in Nova Scotia, we rely on our oceans as like the underpinning of our economy. Still, there are communities in Nova Scotia that are entirely dependent on their fisheries, whether it's lobster or oysters or whatever. They depend. You know, some communities, if, if the fishery disappeared, they'd be gone the next day. Yeah. And um, so we can't risk that. Offshore drilling, even if there is no disastrous spill, it still involves tons of noise in the ocean. And that is really disruptive to all species, right from, you know, like oyster larvae to whales. 
the noise caused by industry in the ocean is disruptive to those species that we rely on. Yeah. And then, but, and, and the seismic testing and all of this. So even if there's no BP 2010 blowout, mm-hmm. we still see an impact on the oceans that we depend on today and tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And in the long run, if we develop that oil, we're going to see other terrible impacts of climate change, um, which take all kinds of forms. And speaking of the fishery specifically, will have impacts on the fishery in the long run as well. So the question for me is like, who benefits here? Mm-hmm. And the answer is BP. Right, <laughs> like, exactly. Let's be real about that. BP is one of the biggest companies that has ever existed in the history of companies. And, you know, the only, when we ask what the risks are, you kind of have to ask also what the benefits are. And it's like, well, the risks are clear. The risks are extreme. The risks come in short-term and long-term varieties. And they're borne by the people of Nova Scotia and the Mi'kmaq people. And who wins? Who, who gets to benefit from this? A few very rich people get to get even richer. And I just don't think that that's a fair equation. That is, and I think that we need to stop this at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is very fair. Uh, we, are, yeah. we are now out of time, but I want to give you okay. a chance to just uh, let us know how if anyone wants to get involved in this, uh, they can. Uh, and yeah. then we'll throw me a break. Absolutely. Um, you can visit our website, canadians.org slash C-P-O-M-S. And we are currently asking because of the new the news about the risk assessment being somewhat bogus. Um, we're calling on Minister McKenna to hit pause on this drilling um, in light of the news. So visit us online and sign that letter. Amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, all right. Uh, can keep up the great work and have a wonderful day. Uh, what are we up to on music? You are listening to The Green Majority here on CAUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners internationally in space, uh, wherever you may be. We, we appreciate your time. Uh, yes. You've given Honestly, to us if you're here. in space, again, and I, I don't want to... Uh, Call to, me? No, I, I was going to say, if you're, <laughs> if you're in space, I appreciate you, you listening a little bit more than people who are living on Earth. That's you know true. What I'm like, again, but, but not over 51%. Not over 51%, no. yeah. But a, 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 a decent percentage of my appreciation goes to anyone listening to this in space. All right. So uh, I've been teasing it for a few weeks, and it's just it's the sort of thing that's not time-sensitive, so it's very prone to getting bumped, but we found it. We managed to squeeze a squeak in here, which is that uh, I am... I'm someone who very much um, tries to think about the root core of a problem and to, to really get to really get at the base of something uh, with the effort that that as such you can then rip it out and a lot of these uh, problems when we're talking about uh, public policy and government issues that a lot of them are very sticky but one of the things that I've learned over the past uh, over decade of doing this show and the reading and, and research that I've done in association with that is just an appreciation for the fact that often, um, it's not the only cause, but often there is an easy answer in the sense that uh, it's easy rhetorically, as in uh, you can sit there and you can talk through it and say, well, obviously this is the problem. So if we just changed that, that would solve the problem. And and sometimes it's not that simple and sometimes it is, but, uh, and even when it's not that simple, often it might be, well, okay, well that would only solve some of the problem. And, but because they're big, because we're talking about big things, people often get scared off that because they're like, well, that's big. It has to do with politics. We can't change that. Um, although I'm not necessarily talking about constitutional changes, something like a constitutional change. People are like, well, that's a big project. You'll never get that passed. 
Um, and therefore, that prevents conversation. And this is actually something I've had when even speaking at family, uh, you know, at dinner at, at Christmas. Uh, I thankfully don't have any, uh, uh, you know, crazy anti-gay people in my family or anything like that. But, but there, but I do, I do like to, you know, as I do on the radio, I do it all in my facets of my life. I like to talk about big things, and and I've had like, oh well, that's you're just wasting my time because that's crazy talk because that'll never happen, and and. And I say no. I say no. I think I think that that you know people had these big ideas when they wrote some of these documents. When they when we made these, you know, governments weren't born out of an egg. We made them, and they can also be changed. And so one of the things, and I don't like to talk, but for the same reason, for the same, for basically the same reason, I don't like to talk about it too much because often you know there's more immediate things going on, as there are now. But there's always immediate things going on. So with that as my preface, I just wanted to give you an idea about the type of thing we're talking about, but also the idea that I'm not saying I'm not implying that this is going to be easy, and I'm not implying that we should just snap our fingers and do it. I just wanted to take a minute to sort of you know put on, take off your reading glasses, lean back in your chair, and just daydream for a minute with me. <laughs> so one of the things that we've been talking about with a lot in American politics. And you've heard about it if you've been following the stuff in the U.S. regarding Trump, uh, particularly around the taxes. And you might have heard of the CBO, which is the Congressional Budget Office. We, to my knowledge, we don't have a comparable agency here in Canada, but I really liked the idea. What it is is a independent, uh, non-independent uh, in the sense that it does not belong to either of the uh, major political parties, uh, and it's independent of the government. It is in fact a private agency. Uh, but it is it is held in high esteem and is filled with some very serious people who uh, will go through proposals such as the recent tax plan that the Americans passed and essentially just cost it. And and this is a really enticing idea and something that, that if there is a – I'm not a public policy expert. If there is a comparable agency uh, or agencies doing similar thing in Canada, they are not held in the same esteem. And, and the reason I say that is because, you know, in the, in the American situation, uh, you know, CBO reports get talked about in the news. Mm -hmm. So we don't, we don't hear about this in Canada. If this agency exists, they need better PR and better marketing, and they need to be held in higher esteem. But what, what would they do? Uh, am I just talking about costing? No. Often um, – one of the issues that we talk about uh, is that, you know, like, for instance, one of the points that I bring up all the time on the show is the idea that, like, well, it's actually cheaper. I know oil is very valuable. And even if you're like, oh, it's so valuable that really climate change, is it plausible that, you know, it's the thing you know you're going to get that's good. You get a birthday cake. But you might get punched in the face five minutes after you eat the birthday cake. It's that delay thing about I have a certain guarantee thing that I want that's guaranteed and it's in front of me. And I have a possible harm, even if that harm's really bad, that's a really difficult decision for a lot of people. Um, you know, it's very tempting to get the certain thing you want, especially if you really want that thing. Uh, and so often long-term decisions get ignored, but often, often the true cost of things get ignored. So let me give you some examples. So one of those things, climate change, easy. Um, sure, oil is worth a lot of money, uh, but climate change is a lot more expensive. Even if we don't care about the loss of human life and misery, uh, if we're just even purely talking about it on uh, economical terms, the cost of climate change is way higher than the value of all the oil that's in the ground. And and it has a relationship. The more oil you dig up to try and pay for climate change, the more expensive the climate change is. Sorry, Justin Trudeau. I hate to break it to you. Uh, there's no way to oil your way out of climate change. That's not how it works. Um, 
But there are a number of other issues. So, for instance, uh, we talked about, about a couple of months ago about uh, issues where there was this super, I, I really wish, I've referred to it three times, I really have to find the link. If someone knows the link I'm talking about, please find the story and send it to me. But there was a story about uh, a mayor in northern Canada, I think northwestern Canada, um, who was like fairly, you know, right wing. Um, and then for some local political reason, you know, the local thing overpowered him and got some like mandatory free housing uh, for homeless people. And he was really against it because he's very right wing by, by your bootstraps type thing. Jason, do you know the article I'm talking about? Uh, I believe that's actually in, um, I thought it was Yellowknife. I, that sounds familiar. Yeah. That's sort of what I was getting at. So if anyone can find the article, send it to me because I reference it all the time. Uh, but <laughs> just because it was a Canadian example of someone saying like, oh, it turns out it's actually way cheaper. It's way cheaper than paying all the administration cost of managing people. And, oh, did you did we give you $47 in food stamps this week? You were only supposed to get $43 in food stamps. Uh, that all that bureaucracy costs a lot of money. It's very expensive, which is why right wingers are always trying to cut it. Um, but it's actually bad. It's even worse for society for people to be starving because for a variety of reasons, right? If people don't have food, they're more likely to steal because they need food to survive. And we're all, you know, anyone. I don't care who you think you are. If you're starving, you'll consider stealing food. I don't give a. It doesn't matter who you are. You will consider stealing when your life is threatened. Um, so like these people are not having basic necessities. We're not talking about self and televisions we're talking about basic needs when they don't have them that there's a weight on society that is greater than the cost of providing them those things and this is just on the dollars and cents this has nothing to do with human dignity or human human misery or respect for human life uh, or anything or 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 any uh, other sort of moral argument you might, you might make it turns out it's just cheaper it's just cheaper to give people stuff sometimes in some cases than it is to try and, you know, put them in a weird bureaucracy where they, they're, they're maybe given a little bit of support, but they have to crawl their way up. So there's a lot of things. So what we essentially want this CBO to do, and there's some auto climate angles here. Uh, but would essentially be a non-political uh, 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 group that would have uh, be staffed entirely by experts. Now, here's the really key part. Uh, not only would they be nonpartisan and that when they not be elected, these aren't people we vote for. These are, we, you know, there's a longer conversation. It could be a whole show how we decide about how we create an equitable system about who gets to be on this board. But the reason it's not as important, we just want, you know, there's some degree of people who have actual credentials would get there and would do this work. And they would produce these reports that would have no opinion whatsoever about the policy. They would be absolutely uh, agnostic about any policy and their job would just be to cost it. But the point would be not just to cost in the long term, the point would be to cost it, uh, sorry, in the the short term, the point would be to cost in the long term. So if we cut the green belt, for instance, sure, we'd get some housing, there might be a short term jump from that. But what would be the long term cost just purely financial, and I'm staying away from from that other stuff intentionally. Uh, because I think we also need a science board. Same thing. All they would do is they'd be accredited scientists, they would be non-partisan, non-elected, and they would simply produce reports. And so these are two agencies that would just pr produce reports. Now, so what's the need? I, I'm providing, I'm, I'm increasing uh, uh, bureaucracy. Why? What's the point? Well, you might have noticed that over the last while that media, for better or worse, for right or for wrong, the mainstream media, no matter what mainstream media you're talking about, has lost its role as sort of the arbiter of truth. Uh, in the sense, you know, people 20 years ago, if you heard it on the news, it was generally accepted as a fact. This whole idea of like, oh, they're just, uh, they're, well, they're politically biased, that, that Dan Rather on the news. Um, and so he's just a lefty liberal, so nothing he said, everything he says is lie. This is a very new concept for, for you uh, young folks listening. Um, but we don't have a central arbiter of truth. And so, so social media has filled in, and we essentially just get told the truth that we want. 
but if you try and put someone in a, if you try and elect someone or appoint someone to a position of power, the, well, they're just they're just the man, quote unquote, right? So that's why the point about having these uh, people, they're all experts, and they would have absolutely no power whatsoever. The third part of this, uh, so we have people reviewing things on financial basis, we have people reviewing things on a scientific basis, they would be two entirely independent bodies that would uh, publish the reports independently, uh, but they would of course share data where necessary. But the, the point was that they would produce two independent reports. Uh, and the third component of this, um, and again I'm just brainstorming here, um, would be that uh, all political parties would be required if you wish to be on the ballot. This would be part of Elections Canada. You would be required to submit your uh, policy proposals in various areas. If you didn't have a policy, that's fine. Um, you wouldn't uh, submit it, but then you couldn't actually promote it. You can't claim you have a thing. So if you're going to go on the campaign entail and talk about my jobs platform, you can't just make a bunch of arbitrary claims. You have to actually have written a proposal that has been costed there to then be able to promote about it. The, otherwise, this would be maybe charged as false advertising or something. So you can't claim to have a policy you haven't actually submitted in writing. <coughs> Sorry about that, Doug Ford. Um, and so the idea was that this, these policies would then get reviewed by these two boards. They would then be posted on a, again, non-government, uh, non-partisan website. And have you ever gone to those, uh, and this is the part, the last part, and I'll let you guys jump in for comment. So if you ever go to those like consumer uh, uh, compare things, or now even like Best Buy and companies like this have it like built into their websites, um, but where you can like pick a bunch of stuff, and maybe you're looking at TVs. Let's just pick something most people are familiar with. And you can pick three brands and you hit compare. And what they'll have is they'll have like hundreds of specs, and they'll have like a column for each of the different TVs. And so what this would do is that you could you could do it and you know people will put out platforms but but you have to go to sort of private agencies or you have to do it yourself uh, to sort of compare them directly. This would be the official repository of public policy. So when people submit their policy of what they're going to do, of course you could change your policy once you're in government, but it provides clarity and side-by-side -side analysis. And so once you have this policy, if you want to talk about it, you have to submit it for review and your policy and then the reviews to it would all be posted on the website side-by-side. -side. So you can go and review on an official government, this is the one-stop shop uh, website uh, that would be, again, non-political uh, agency part of the government um, that would simply manage this repository, these two agencies and this repository of information so that any time there is any discussion of public policy, you would have what are you proposing in writing, in detail. It would be reviewed by professional people who would actually cost it. They were not part of your party. It would be scientifically analyzed for truth, essentially, uh, by people who are not part of your party, and it would be right beside everyone else's proposals. And now the parties themselves could put anything in there. Nobody's telling them what to do. And these, uh, say the science body says, this is a terrible document. They have no power aside from their rhetoric. These are not putting, these are not putting scientists in charge. They're not giving them superpowers. The attempt here is to get, uh, is to eliminate uh, uh, people just making stuff up and get us all on the same factual page so that even if you're a voter uh, sitting there thinking, well, I don't, I don't necessarily agree. I think that those, uh, the scientists over at the science uh, uh, review office, uh, uh, whatever it might be called, I think they're all lefty, like, it doesn't matter. You don't even have to have faith in the institution because most of the purpose would still exist. It would still allow, it would still force by law all the parties to produce the stuff in writing. It would still provide people, a, so maybe an NGO could go and actually do a, a, a good review of these policies because they're all there and all compare them. So people could still do what they want with this information. I, I don't have any false illusions about the fact that we would do this and then everyone would just defer to them. The point was is that even if you think that the system was corrupt, it would still provide a service to our democracy by the functionality of its 
system, even if you think the people that are, even if you think the people that are organizing it are you know corrupt guy, people for the other side. Uh, so I, the, again, the points I want to hit are uh, uh, long-term thinking, uh, trying to institutionalize long-term thinking, trying to institutionalize scientific factualism, and trying to improve our democracy by uh, removing the uh, by reducing the ability of politicians to BS people. Those are my three main takeaways. Comments, please, uh, Stefan. I have about thirty seconds before the show ends. Uh, so wow. I will say that I really a look at the environmental commissioner Diane Sachs. Uh, that's basically <laughs> that what the, she does, but for environment stuff in Ontario. Uh, the parliamentary budgetary office in uh, in federally is mandated on that. However, there is an interesting difficulty in Canada, which I th would be interested to talk about. Perhaps in future show about the fact that bills are not omnibus bills are 180 pages, and so uh, uh, and change. You know, Harper's budgetary bill changed basically everything, uh, and so I'd be interested in how we could actually create a system that would actually be able to effectively check on everything in sort of the grand scope of things. Uh, but at least there is a parliamentary budget, budget officer who does some of that work. But really, the work of Diane Sachs is incredible, and everyone should check it out. All right, so I tried my best to do it in time. Couldn't. We got to go, but we'll think about it. We'll sleep on it, and you guys can comment next time. Thank you. That's all we have time for a good reading uh, majority. Have a good show. Take care, and goodbye. <laughs>